Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul started the church in Thessalonica during his second missionary journey in about AD 51. And he wrote this letter a short time later to encourage the young believers there because he wanted to make sure that they knew that he loved them and to praise them for their faithfulness during persecution and to remind them about their hope, their blessed hope, the sure return of their Lord and Savior. Paul starts this letter with a word of encouragement. He thanks God for their strong faith and their good reputation. Then he reviews or, uh, their relationship, how he and his companions brought the gospel to them. Then how they accepted the message and how he longed to be with them again. Because of his concern for them, Paul sent Timothy to encourage them in their faith. And then Paul presents the heart of his message. Exhortation and comfort. He challenges them to please God in their everyday living by avoiding sexual immorality, loving each other, and living like good citizens in a sinful world. Paul comforts the Thessalonians by reminding them about the hope of the resurrection. And then he warns them to be ready at all times because Jesus Christ could return at any moment. And that applies to us this evening as well. When Jesus returns, those Christians who are alive and those who have died will raise, be raised to new life. And then Paul gives the Thessalonians a few reminders on how to pre- prepare themselves for the second coming. He warns them. He says, warn the unruly. He says, comfort the faint-hearted. He says, uphold the weak. Be patient with everyone. Be kind to everyone. Always be loyal and joyful. Pray continually. Give thanks. Test everything that's taught and avoid evil. Paul ends his letter with two blessings and a request for prayer. So as you read this letter, you know, on your, as you go through it, you say, listen carefully to Paul's practical advice for Christian living. And when you're weighed down, listen carefully to Paul's practical advice for Christian living. And when you're weighed down, excuse me, and you're overweight, overwhelmed by sorrow, take hope in the reality of the resurrection of Christ's return and eternal life. So let's begin with chapter one with verses one and two. Paul says, Paul, Silvanus or Silas and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the introduction, the character of the greeting is grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Paul's greetings, grace always came before peace. And this is true in salvation because the grace of the gospel has to come Before the peace with God and the peace of God comes to a man. It's also true in society, in marriage or any situation. If grace is lacking, guess what? Peace is going to be lacking. The way Paul mentions the Godhead here in the greeting is very informative. It's instructive. 
The first person of the God here, it says God the Father, God our Father. God is the Father in creation, but our Father through salvation. Then the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. Twice, Paul gives three names to the second person of the Godhead. First, the name referring to his position, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. This shows his authority. He's over all. Scripture later says Jesus is Lord of Lords in Revelation 19.16. Secondly, the name designating his forgiveness, Jesus. It speaks of salvation, of pardon for the sinner. His name means Jehovah is salvation. And third, <clears throat> the name designating his prince-like character, Christ. Christ means anointed one, and it speaks of his messianic office. That's why... When you see this title, this instructive, informative title, this greeting here, that's why the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against the church. And remember, the church is not the building. It is you. It is I. We are the church. Satan may attack and he may disrupt a local church at times. But you know what? He's powerless to harm the universal church. And no plans, no schemes of the devil, no wickedness of men, no attack of the world, and no work of the flesh can harm Christ's church. Why? Because notice what it says here in verse 1. It is what, where? In. It is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't be in a better position. You can't be in a safer place. And at the end, God overrules even all of what seems like Satan's victories over a given local church. And he uses them to show his wisdom and his love and his power. The church at Thessalonica was the subject here. Paul had been forced to leave town and he's forced to leave a new church to face a sudden outbreak of persecution and all of this, all of the, the attacks of Satan. And no doubt Satan was probably pretty proud of himself. Because he caused, you know, this persecution and, and Paul to leave town. He's probably patting himself on his back and saying, man, I did a good job. He's probably pr proud of, of winning such a fast and impressive victory. And if that's the case, Satan was quickly disappointed. Naturally, Paul's presence would have been a great comfort to the Thessalonian church. Because you see, Paul, man, he was a veteran when it came to dealing with persecution. Paul's physical presence wasn't nearly as important, though, as him being able to wage war from far away. And that's just what he did. And he waged war with a pen. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he writes this letter. And it's a letter that would last forever. We're reading it tonight. The church at Thessalonica was God's church. This church is God's church. The church in Thessalonica was God's church. It was totally united with both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It was in them. It might look small. It might look even weak and even disgraceful to the world. But it is a terrible enemy to Satan and his kingdom. A Bible-believing and a Bible-living church is a terrible uh, um, enemy to, to Satan's kingdom. Satan and his demons, they see it as a called out one. They see it as called out by God. They see it as, as, as glorious and invincible. 
blameless. And God's church is feared by Satan's principalities and powers. You see, Satan is afraid and he fights really hard against the word of God. He hates the word of God because, you see, it's our only weapon against him. His first attack was on Eve in the garden. Satan based his attack on three things. A doubt, a denial, and a delusion. He came to Eve bringing her the doubt. Has God indeed said? And then with a denial, you shall not surely die. And then the delusion, oh, you're going to be just like God. You see, that's how sin starts. Sin begins when you begin to question God's word. You see, Satan's first goal was to take away from Eve the only weapon that she had against him by robbing her of the word of God. And after that, she was in his power. That's why Satan comes against you to read the word of God, to study the word of God, to memorize the word of God, to meditate upon the word of God, because it's your only weapon against him. And if he can keep you from getting into the word of God, he has robbed you of the only weapon you have against him. Ever since that day in the garden, Satan has been freaking out as he watches in shock and hopelessness as century after century, he watched more and more books being added to the Bible. Then in the Old Testament Bible, it was completed. Satan must have thought, finally, 39 books. And then Satan foolishly made things worse for himself by running Paul out of Thessalonica. And as a result, Paul was forced to leave Thessalonica, but he picks up a pen and he starts to write. And then another 27 books were added to God's word, 14 of them written by Paul himself. No wonder Satan trembles at his word. Paul said in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you. Paul was giving thanks. He was praising the the Thessalonian believers for their salvation. He says, we make mention of you in our prayers without ceasing. Paul prayed for the Thessalonian believers. Satan must be terrified when he sees God's people on their knees in prayer. He said, we prayed for you without ceasing. This means Paul prayed for them regularly. You see, it not only stresses how often that he prayed, but also how faithfully he prayed. Even though he was in prison, Paul had a wonderful prayer life, a good prayer life. Paul didn't just pray for the lost to be saved. He also prayed for the saved after they were saved. Yeah, it is good to pray for people to be saved. We want people to be saved. But you know what? After they're saved, we shouldn't stop praying for them. The lost and the saved need our prayers. Look at verse 3. He goes on to say, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. The basic theme in this letter is the second coming of Jesus Christ. It was about 20 years since Jesus resurrected here and ascended to heaven and promising that he was going to come again. So Paul starts out here by mentioning your work of faith which put each Thessalonian believer into the family of God. The Old Testament believers, they looked forward to this time. They looked forward to Christ. They looked forward to this faith. They looked forward to these important truths. We look back at them. 
But the believer doesn't live in the past. We live in the present. Paul mentions their labor of love. Love is what the Christian faith is really all about. Love is what makes things real. The life of Christ can be summed up in one word. Love. Love. Additionally, the the believer longs. He's looking for the future hope that's waiting for us in the second coming of Christ. So Paul mentions also here, notice, the, the patience of hope. He mentions their patience of hope. The church's great hope is the rapture. What Paul calls our blessed hope in Titus 2.13. He keeps this hope alive before the Thessalonians all through the letter. The Thessalonians were practicing their faith, their love, and their hope in their eagerness for the Lord's return. He says here, and in the sight of our God and Father. See, the the Father's loving eye is on us. He loves us with an everlasting love. He loves us with a love that is patient. It suffers long. It's kind. It's a love that won't let us go. Our enemies may may be watching us. And I'm sure they are. But there's one who watches over us, who is love himself. Verse 4. He says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. God makes choices. And so do we. The Holy Spirit makes it perfectly clear that divine election is based totally on God's foreknowledge. 1 Peter 1, 2. The exact moment that we choose Jesus Christ, the same moment God chooses us. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day to the Lord. As far as God is concerned, the two acts take place at the same time. Now, I'm okay with that. Because he chose me. So I'm not going to argue about the point. But you might say, I don't know if he's chosen me. How do I know if, I, if I'm chosen or I'm not chosen? It's not fair for God to choose because I don't know if he chooses me or not. Well, it's pretty easy to find out. All you have to do is ask Jesus into your life. And then you know he's chosen you. Very simple. Turn, and you turn your life over to him. You'll discover then that he chose you. And he'll say, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you to be my disciple. You might say, well, you know what? Maybe I don't want to. Well, then maybe he didn't choose you. Understand, you cannot blame him for not being saved. You say, well, he didn't choose me. Well, You don't know until you receive him. And then when you do, you find out that he did. So again, the ball is in your court. We cannot say that God has given all of us a will, okay? And then say that we can't exercise our will when it comes to making a decision for Christ. God created people, not robots, and people have wills of their own. Verse 5. For our gospel, Paul said, did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. The gospel is always in word. Because it's really a message from God. It deals with facts. It reveals truth about God and man. It gives an invitation. It attracts and it warns. People need to be told the gospel is in word. 
But it's not in word only. Because talk is cheap. Malachi told the Jews in Malachi 2.17, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How many times do we weary the Lord with our words? Oh yes, Lord, I love you. Oh yes, I'm going to do this, Lord, and I'm going to do that, and we never come through. Paul did not walk all the way from Philippi to Thessalonica with a bloody back just to talk some cheap talk. He bore in his body the marks of a biblical Christian. Paul's power was in message. And the word power here is dunamis. It's a miraculous power. It's an unhindered power. It's an equaled power. And when Paul came to town, he just didn't hold a few meetings, get his honorarium and go home. Paul expected things to happen. Paul expected people to get saved and he expected lives would be changed and he expected churches to pop up. People would get angry. People would get saved. The devil would stir up opposition. When Paul got to Thessalonica, he expected the explosive dynamite power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to shake things up there just like it did in Philippi. That's what the word of God does. Paul went there to preach. And he went there knowing that when he left town, people would know that a man of God had been among them. Man, when we're around people and we're witnessing and we leave, those men and women should know that, you know, a man or woman of God was just among them. And Paul didn't depend upon his personality. He didn't depend upon his personal skills or his credentials. He didn't rely on his wisdom or his excellent speech or his education or his authoritative personality. It wasn't his wonderful notes or his illustrations. It wasn't his outspokenness that brought such extraordinary results that always resulted from his preaching. It was, as it says in 1 Corinthians 2.4, it was in demonstration of the Holy Spirit. From start to finish... Everything about Christianity is the work of God. It is a supernatural work. The moment you receive Christ till the day you die, it is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a luxury. He's not an option. He's a necessity like air is to the lungs. The Christians, the Christian cannot live without him. Preaching has to be in the power and in the Holy Spirit. Adrian Rogers says, if a church is not supernatural, it's superficial. Someone else said, if the Spirit is not in it, all you have is a social club. A.W. Tozer says, so much work is done in the flesh today. That if the spirit left, the church wouldn't know. Paul's preaching was also, it says here, in much assurance. Paul preached for only three Sabbaths there. And a bunch of people got saved. Paul marched into Thessalonica. He was filled, anointed with the Holy Spirit for three Sabbaths. And a bunch of people got saved. Paul was confident. 
that God would produce spectacular results in Thessalonica. Just like Elijah was sure when he called down fire from heaven. Just like Moses was sure when he stood before Pharaoh, staff in his hand. Just like Joshua was sure when he commanded the sun to stand still. They expected great results from God. God is not different today than he was then. I think our expectation of God is different. We don't expect those kinds of things. We doubt God. Rather than stand upon the promises. Verses 6 and 7. He says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Now from these verses that Paul says here in verses 6 and 7, we can see now what the Thessalonians, Thessalonians saw then. There was no difference between the Christ that Paul preached and the Christianity that he practiced. Sorely lacking today in the church. They saw the, the, the Christ that Paul preached in his life. If you follow, right here, they say, if you followed Paul, you follow Jesus. Because Paul followed Jesus Christ very closely. Paul had learned how to live the Christ-like life so that he could actually tell his converts, hey guys, follow me. Follow what I say and do. What a life. What a testimony. To be able to say, hey, you know what? Follow me. I'll show you what Christ is like. Amazing. Extraordinary. Also, Paul had learned how to live, like I said, the Christ-like life. The Thessalonians, it says here, received the word in much affliction. But notice how they received it. With joy. Joy of the Holy Spirit. They recognized the world is our enemy. They recognized it's the world that murdered God's son. The world persecutes the church in all human society. The Thessalonians, the, the Thessalonians responded to persecution the way that Paul and Silas did at Philippi. They sang. Joy, Galatians tells us, is the second fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not just happiness. There's a difference between joy and happiness. Because happiness depends on what happens around you. It's circumstantial. It depends upon your environment. But joy is rooted in God and that can't be taken from you. And all through the ages, Christian, Christian martyrs sang in the arena and they sang when they were being burned at the stake. Paul says here, they were examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. One reason that Christianity was able to conquer the Roman Empire was because it was so obviously real. Pagans. They came across neighbors and friends and loved ones and co-workers, masters and officials whose lives had been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone said, my faith must radically change my behavior if it's going to change my destiny. 
There must be evidences of a newborn life. We cannot say we have come to the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm born again and not see a radically changed life. They saw wicked people become pure. They saw dishonest people become trustworthy. They saw cruel people become kind. They saw idol worshipers worshiping the true and living Jehovah God. That's what the gospel will do when it comes into a person's life. The pagans didn't just see people who had turned over a new leaf like everybody's going to try to do come New Year's. They didn't see people that said, you know, we're going to make some changes in our life and we're going to make our life a little better. We're going to live better lives. They saw people who were now patient, gentle, good, meek, self-controlled and full of the highest kind of faith and love. They saw radical, permanent and miraculous transformation of character. That's what the world wants to see. Don't tell me you're a Christian. Show me one. And you know, now we have to call it a biblical Christian. To define what being a Christian is, it's a biblical Christian living by the standards of the word of God. They saw people who were resisting temptation. They saw people who weren't discouraged by the most savage persecution that you could experience. They saw people whose lives glorified the word of God. They saw faith that was that was real. A living faith. Faith is not real if it doesn't produce some holy changes in your life. Paul saw the Thessalonians setting the pace for all of the all of greater Greece. Look what he says in verse 9. From you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say say anything. You see, true evangelism is a byproduct of a healthy church. Verse 9, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice again, evidence of true, a, a true born again experience. We've heard about you turning from idols to the living God. Here Paul tells us that the Thessalonians were spreading the gospel. You know, they, they, they weren't hiding like scaredy cats behind closed doors and, and just whispering the gospel to only their closest family and friends. They were preaching the good news loudly in the marketplace from the rooftops. They told everybody everywhere and, and people were noticing. What they had found in Jesus Christ, hey, it was just too good to keep to themselves. They weren't closet Christians. It's embarrassing when when you've been around people for a long time or you're at work and 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 you know you may you've been around these people for a long time and they, I didn't know you were a Christian. Wow. I shouldn't have to tell them. They should know there's something peculiar about me. Paul said, "Man, we didn't have to do anything." It's like Paul said, "We worked ourselves out of a job." 
Instead of him going to others with the gospel, people were coming to him because they had already heard it from the Thessalonian believers. This is what biblical Christianity looks like. This is what a revival looks like. The gospel and the effects of the gospel was being gossiped all the way from Thessalonica to Corinth. I mean, that's something to gossip about. This revival had become the topic of conversation. He says how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Obviously, most of the converts in this mighty moving of the Holy Spirit, they were pagans and idolaters. They turned from the idols to the true and the living God. Listen to what A.W. Tozer said. The grace of God will save a man, but it will not save a man in his idol. The blood of Christ will shield the penitent sinner alone, but never the sinner and his idol. Faith will justify the sinner, but it will never justify the sinner and his sin. Demons were behind the idols that were always ready to enslave a man's mind and soul of those who worshiped them. Gentiles by the thousands were ready and willing to turn to God from their idols. A.W. Tozer also said, A whole generation of Christians has come up believing that it's possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. These people that Paul are talking about, they finally found the reality that they had longed for, and that is the living and true God. That's what people are longing for, but they don't know it. They're looking for the truth of God in Christ. Preached in all of the mighty, convincing, life-changing power of the Holy Spirit. That's what had taken their hearts by storm. By the thousands, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. That is true conversion. True conversion always involves a turning away and about face. Going the opposite direction from sin, forsaking that sin. Jesus said, I have come to save, save uh, people from their sin, not in their sin. He came to save us from sin not in our sin. Verse 10. And to wait, notice, they turn from the idols to the living God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul now brings us to the main truth of this letter. The truth he's moving towards throughout the first chapter here, the Lord's coming the rapture. And when you get to chapter 4, he talks all about it. Paul unquestionably confirmed that Jesus, who once ascended to heaven, is also the Jesus that believers are waiting for. The one that God raised from the dead. The reference to the resurrection from the dead. The, I'm sorry, uh, the reference yeah, to the resurrection gives us the basis for the return of Jesus Christ. God raised him from the dead because he was pleased with his sacrifice for sin and because he wanted uh, one day to exercise his sovereign right to rule as king of kings. The word wait here is used only here in the New Testament and it refers to expectant waiting. It, it talks about sustained, patient, trusting waiting. No matter what happens to us. 
It means to have expectant looking for Jesus' return from heaven. And to have this expectancy. Looking for Christ's return is just one more important part in this first chapter that defines a Christian. Waiting. And it is a recurring theme in the Thessalonian letters. We see it many times. Uh, We see it throughout the scriptures about waiting on the Lord. The true believer looks forward to Christ's return with an excitement. Does the church have that excitement tonight? They have this excitement. They look forward to Christ's return because they know that it brings fulfillment and satisfaction to God's eternal plan all along. And that is to deliver us from the wrath that's to come. Jesus is the rescuer. He's the deliverer and he's the savior of those who would otherwise be headed for judgment and eternal punishment. But these believers that were waiting for that blessed hope, these believers that were waiting for Christ to come for them, they weren't interested in the clouds. They weren't interested in the prophecies or the signs of his coming. Or his deliverance even. They were looking forward to being with Jesus himself. They were looking forward to being in the conscious presence of the living God. He was the object of their hope. He was the one they were waiting for. He was the focus of their attention. May Jesus himself, rather than anything that will accompany him or characterize his return, will that always be the hope of his saints. But may that be the thing that we're looking for. Jesus himself. The wrath of God is coming. The return of Jesus Christ is a source of hope for Christians for a lot of reasons. But the reason that Paul gives here was Jesus' deliverance of the saints from the coming wrath of God. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on the unrighteous people because of the rejection and their failure to trust in Jesus Christ. Paul, the Thessalonians, and Christians today will escape all aspects of God's wrath. General wrath and specific, including the great tribulation period. And this chapter, like every chapter in this letter, closes with a reference to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In closing, what every church should be, what every church should be is what every Christian should be. Born again. Exemplary. That is imitating the right people. It should be enthusiastic. That is sharing the gospel with others. It should be expectant, ready, daily, looking for the return of Christ. We need to take inventory. Are we we excited for his return? Are we waiting for him to come? Are you rapture ready because see there's nothing 
There's nothing that needs to happen before Jesus comes back. The only thing is waiting for that last person to be saved. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. You may be keeping me from the rapture. And we do pray, you know, if you haven't received the Lord Jesus Christ, that you do so for your sake. I may get there a little sooner, I may not, but it's for your sake. So if God has spoken to your heart, don't reject the voice of the Holy Spirit. Submit to it. Let's pray. Gracious God and faithful Father, Lord, we come to you now to thank you so much for your wonderful word, Lord. God, we thank you for your love that is never-ending, that is sacrificial, that is all-encompassing, and that you loved us so much that you sent your only Son to pay the penalty for my sins. You took it out on him upon that cross and he shed his precious blood for me. And that blood is the only 100% foolproof cleaning agent that will wipe away man's sins. Nothing else will. Nothing else can.